Perhaps the most instructive section of the Hebrews letter is from chapter 7 through 10. It's there we read of the puzzling, intriguing figure of Melchizedek. Elsewhere in the Bible, he appears only briefly in Genesis chapter 14, where he meets Abraham and blesses him after his rescue of his nephew, Lot. He's someone who seems to walk in and out of the Bible unannounced and without any background information. It's only when we get to Hebrews chapter 7 that we can begin to appreciate why this should be the case. He's being presented to us as a picture or type of the Lord Jesus, who's a high priest forever. We're told this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham as he was returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him, remains a priest perpetually. All biographical data concerning this historical figure has been kept from us in the biblical record. What this means is that he appears to be without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life. Obviously, he did have a father, but we're given no information in the Bible about him, so that, quite intentionally, Melchizedek appears as someone without a father. And the same applies to the other things said about him, all because he's picturing for us the Son of God, who as God had no mother, and in becoming man had no earthly father. Neither did he have any beginning of his existence, for being God, the Creator, he always existed. But the main point in Hebrews chapter 7 is to impress upon us the fact that Jesus' priesthood is so much better than the priesthood of Aaron and subsequent high priests in Israel long ago. Each of them died and were succeeded by a son. But by contrast, Melchizedek is presented so as to appear to be a priest perpetually. He's a priest when we first read about him, and he exits from view still as a priest. Unlike Aaron, whose death we read about. The priesthood of Jesus is of the Melchizedek type, because he remains a priest forever. And that's why he's able to save forever those who draw near to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. Ah, there we get another reminder of the thrilling idea we're pursuing throughout this entire letter to the Hebrews. The disclosure of how it's possible for God's people today to draw near to God, to actually enter spiritually into heaven itself while still living here on earth. The actual mechanics of this, or perhaps better, the realisation of this, requires the Lord Jesus to function in heaven on their behalf in his capacity as eternal high priest. The biblical writers didn't write about God coming down to meet them in their church gatherings in the New Testament, but about how they, as God's people, ascended spiritually into God's presence above. Yes, I know Matthew 18 talks about the Lord in their midst, but that's not in a church gathering context, but it's when two or three are met together for the business of sorting out church disciplinary matters. So back with Hebrews, chapter 8 continues and intensifies this focus on Jesus as high priest in the heavens. In contrast to the earthly priests of Israel's past, who served among tabernacle and temple, the Lord's sphere of service is in connection with the heavenly things which served as the model for these mere earthly counterparts. So you see, this clarifies... 
it confirms that the actual setting for the gatherings of God's people in their spiritual worship is a heavenly one, one which enters into this hidden realm of things as they draw near through their high priest. I hope you agree with me that this really is a thrilling disclosure, one that should prevent our service becoming seemingly mundane and ordinary. It's the highest privilege of our lives to engage in the things of which this letter has so much to say. Privilege like this comes with responsibility, of course, which is why there are so many specific warnings which are like the backbone of this Hebrews letter and of this series. And if anyone should persist in thinking the way we serve God is something that we can decide for ourselves, don't forget God struck down two of Aaron's priestly sons who preferred to do things their own way. And their service was only surrounded by the copies of the actual realities which are involved in the new covenant service of the people of God. Service which is according to the New Testament pattern. We need to be so much more careful, even although it is the day of grace, because we're invited to serve among spiritual realities above. The superiority of that new covenant is the next theme taken up, leading us on into chapter 9 of Hebrews, which surely has to be one of the most detailed chapters of amazing teaching anywhere in the Bible. The furniture of the tabernacle of Moses' day is itemised as serving as a detailed parable for our service now. And the ritual of the annual day of atonement in Israel fills the rest of chapter 9. This was the one day in Israel's calendar year when the people, who were recognised as the people of God at that time, engaged in a very solemn and significant ritual based around the ceremonial cleansing of the tabernacle. This was the one time each year when anyone, and it could only be the high priest, could enter into the second tabernacle compartment, the sanctuary behind the veil or curtain, where the Ark of the Covenant was located, the compartment known as the Holy of Holies. Only he could enter, and only then, and only with the blood of goats and bulls, as specified in Leviticus chapter 16. But listen to this. Verse 8 in Hebrews 9 says, The Holy Spirit is signifying this, that the way into the holy place has not yet been disclosed. The not yet applied to the days before Christ's coming. But I want to say again, we're living in the days when this this out-of-this-world disclosure applies and is in force. We often, and rightly, emphasise in teaching the wonderful disclosure of Matthew chapter 16 and Ephesians chapter 2 concerning the church, the body of Christ, and how it's made up in this age of all true believers of the Lord Jesus, whether Jew or Gentile, whether dead or alive. But do we give enough attention to this complementary disclosure regarding the operation of God's house? The key insight shared here, amid all the imagery of the great Old Testament object lesson or parable, which was the tabernacle, and the annual Day of Atonement ritual centred around it, the key insight is that God's people today can enter into the immediate presence of God in their collective worship. This is what answers to the limited access God's Old Testament people had in tabernacle days. They only ever drew near and entered in representatively in the solitary person of their appointed high priest. 
But our high priest, being of the order of Melchizedek, is so much better, and the new covenant service so vastly superior, that all of God's people today enter into the actual heavenly counterpart of the Holy of Holies long ago. You see, Jesus, our high priest, entered in resurrection and ascension as a forerunner. And it's God's design that we follow him in today, into where he's already gone in for us, as we engage together in service for God in accordance with the biblical pattern. The way into the holy place has been disclosed. And what a disclosure, for the holy place is the true holy place in heaven itself. We've spoken of the Lord entering ahead of us as a forerunner. We should expand on that, for some verses in Hebrews 9 are often misunderstood. When verse 11 talks about the appearance of Christ through the greater and more perfect tabernacle, some think this is Christ appearing on earth, and the tabernacle there is a reference to his human body. But a careful reading of what follows, and the wider context, shows it's Christ's appearing in heaven and a reference to his passage through the courts and compartments of the actual, real tabernacle located in heaven above. Verse 24 makes it plain. Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself. All this is the magnificent build-up to the fourth warning from Hebrews 10 and verse 19 to the end of the chapter. In the extended context of the preceding chapters which we've been reviewing, there can now be no mistaking what's being said here, even though it's something that's so awesome. The original readers of this letter, and those of us today, are warned not to throw away our confidence by shrinking back and forsaking our own assembling together. Instead, we are to hold fast the confession of our hope. What hope? What confidence? Let Hebrews 10 and verse 19 answer it. We have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with sincere heart. Remember, the overall purpose that this letter served. It was aimed at securing the allegiance of wavering Jews in the first century churches of God, Jewish Christians, Hebrews, who were being pressurised to return to the fold of Judaism. How could anyone leave the New Testament community of local interlinked churches of God if they truly grasped what this disclosure meant? They wouldn't dream of going back to the Old Testament shadows compared to this, surely. The gold, copper and polished gems of the old ways simply pale into insignificance by contrast. Little wonder the writer urges the need for holding on to their hope and their confidence if they were to maintain their place in God's house on earth with its corporate access into the heavenly sanctuary. For, as we've already seen, the particular hope and the specific confidence in question if we trace these words and what they're linked with in the entirety of this Hebrews letter, we find both the hope and the confidence relate to the spiritual entry into heaven for a serving people as disclosed here. The revelation of God's house on earth and the revelation of spiritual service in the holies above are twin truths that can only be appreciated together.